It has been two years, eight months, and ten days since I last treated a patient. I imagine most people will read the title of this episode and assume that I made a lot of people cry because of the mechanical part of being a physical therapist. There's the colloquialism that PT actually stands for pain and torture instead of physical therapy. This episode is not about pain and torture. In fact, with the exception of a brief period of time in the early part of my career where I would use instrumented-assisted soft tissue mobilization, very little of what I did was physically painful for patients. Oh, and for non-providers, instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization is the technical term for grinding on your body with the stainless steel bars. It was very unpleasant. I won't take away from the fact that many kinds of physical therapy are, are painful. I've mentioned frozen shoulder in a past episode. PT treatment for this is quite painful. If you've had surgery, we're probably going to assist you in regaining range just like in a frozen shoulder. However, as I've mentioned before, post-operative PT bores me to tears, so I didn't do very much of it. That meant most of what I did to patients physically was very gentle. So it begs the question, why am I making so many people cry? To summarize, I made people cry with psychological damage. I'm a wonderful person like that. People who listen to this and know me well will certainly say that from time to time I can be an asshole. Those people will also know that when I say the times I created psychological damage in my patients, it was not me being an asshole. They know that I always treated my patients with respect and care, even in situations where internally I wanted to wring the patient's neck. My job was to not to teach moral lessons, punish people for not following instructions, or retaliate for horrendous behavior. My job was to guide and help correct the pain and dysfunction I saw, irrelevant of the human being the pain and dysfunction was attached to. When I say I created psychological damage, it was by being a bearer of bad news. I was the messenger for reality, and reality is far more cruel than I can ever be. I suppose I should clarify something here. I imagine that most people hear me say that I'm the messenger for reality and fall into the assumption that I'm doing something akin to a physician telling their patient they have cancer or that they'll never walk again. This is not the message I delivered. Allow me to go on a tangent that you all know by now I'm prone to do. I've always been very protective of my license. It was too hard to get and way too expensive to give up. I'm not about to risk losing my license to a legal battle because I diagnosed something that was outside of my scope of care. I think it's safe to say that nearly anyone listening to this from any educational or career background will generally understand what the word diagnosis means. However, those in the medical field will know there are nuances to what diagnosis can mean to us. When I evaluate a patient, I am required to put a diagnosis in the chart for which all treatment codes are billed under. This is a PT diagnosis, not a medical diagnosis. I cannot diagnose things such as cancer. I can only diagnose very specific things that fit under my scope of practice. One example would be the frozen shoulder I've specified in a previous episode. This would be a diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis in the shoulder. I'm not going to give further details on what constitutes a PT diagnosis versus an out-of-scope diagnosis because it's nothing but murky gray area going forward from here. It's where you end up seeing a lot of diagnoses on PT documentation saying something very vague like low back pain, neck pain, or ankle sprain. Going into any more specificity of diagnosis starts to blur the line between what is, what we as PTs are allowed to diagnose versus what we aren't. 
I always preferred to put a PT diagnosis that is easy to argue fits within my scope of practice, but leaves the reader very little information on what's actually going on. I could put grade 2 spondylolisthesis at L4 and L5 and be accurate, but I'm not a radiologist, so therefore putting this diagnosis in the chart, true or not, can leave me potentially liable. Instead, I could put low back pain and be accurate without being specific enough for someone to take me to court for scope violation. Okay, now that I'm finished with yet another lengthy tangent, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. I'm not causing psychological damage by being the messenger of reality regarding a life-alting diagnosis. The damage I cause is being the messenger of something that is above legal bullshit. I am the messenger for things like gravity that have no regard for inconsequential humans' emotions about their pain. The human constructs of comfort, preference, opinions, feelings... These mean nothing at the scale of the cosmos. Being the messenger for this is what is so painful to so many patients, and without a doubt, where I generated, generated the most tears. I'm going to tell the story of an individual, who happens to be my wife, that is representative of nearly every person I've made cry over the span of my career. Another tangent here, but this one is tiny. I refuse to actively engage my friends and family in physical therapy. This isn't my philosophy, it was one actually told to us in PT school and, honestly, all medical professions. Treating friends and family is folly from the start. At its core, they know all of your horseshit, and you know theirs. It's impossible for a provider to be truly objective with a friend or family member. It is also impossible for a friend or family member to truly listen to what you say as the provider and believe it. This doesn't stop every single friend and family member from asking, why does my back hurt? And when I reply with, I don't treat friends or family, most of them have a hard time not rolling their eyes at me for being unreasonable. They're not wrong. In my daily life, I'm constantly unreasonable, and stubborn, and lazy, and any other, of, any other number of adverbs that are factual about me as a human. These facts about me, and that my friends and family know them, are part of the reason I don't treat friends and family. Where I make a concession is that if I'm asked about something... I will make a couple of guesses and apply basic anatomy, physiology, and biomechanics. If I do any kind of treatment, it is the one that is my first gut reaction to what they tell me. If it does not clearly benefit the person right away, I step out and recommend someone I trust to take care of them. I will say that I'm extremely picky about who I trust to handle my friends and family, though. I even sat in on sessions where my family member is being treated to make sure the person working with my loved ones really does know what they're doing. I'm not evaluating their diagnosis or even their plan of care. I'm only evaluating their critical thinking skills and thought processes that lead them to where they got with their plan of care. This is the way I sort of treat my family and friends. I find someone who can best take care of them because I simply cannot best take care of them. So going back to those adverbs that are true about me, yeah, I totally just lied that I was only going to go on a tiny tangent. That wasn't tiny at all, was it? Even greater demonstration of my confirmation bias that I can't treat family and friends. Anyway, back to my wife's story. She was dealing with debilitating back and hip pain. I'm not going to go into the full details of my marriage and her personality, but I do feel a little context is necessary. My wife is the human embodiment of a puppy. If we go for a 20-mile hike one day, she will wake up the next day and ask, what are we going to do today? My response is typically, we hiked 20 miles yesterday, and her response is pretty consistently, that was yesterday, I don't remember yesterday, 
How are we going to go play today? Your takeaway from this aside is that if she's not moving all the time, she's very unhappy. To go darker with it, it's not just a pout or frown on the face kind of unhappiness. It's severe depression, decreased ability to work at her job, and difficulty taking in and retaining new information. She needs to move. When she comes to me with debilitating back and hip pain that, that doesn't resolve in a few days is because it is impacting her ability to move. She has a demanding career with long hours, and she also moonlights as a highly trained and passionate yoga instructor. In the little free time she has, she goes for short walks by her definition, which really translates to two plus miles, hiking in the summer, and is crazy about the snow sports in the winter. Inability to move is not only untenable, it's a goddamned emergency. At the time, her primary form of winter activity was snowboarding. As I'm recording this episode now, most of my listeners are PTs. The non-PT listeners generally know me in at least some capacity through my previous PT practice, my LinkedIn presence, or have a third-party relationship to me through the people I know. From what I know about my current listeners, I can comfortably say that if you, listener, are into snowboards, snow sports, you are probably a snowboarder. I'm more than likely going to piss off many of you with what I'm about to say next. Orthopedically speaking, snowboarding is a ridiculously stupid activity to partake in. I don't judge you for doing it. As many who have done both snowboarding and skiing will say, snowboarding is way more fun than skiing. In addition, if I take equivalently talented skiers and snowboarders, the snowboarder always looks so much more badass doing their thing. I can also already hear responses now to my statement that snowboarding is orthopedically bad for you, especially from PTs who know about the body. But Adam, skiing is a guaranteed ACL tear. Your foot is locked in a boot with a long ski that can get caught and twist your knee. You're doomed to tear your ACL eventually if you ski. You, my friends, are correct. Given enough time and frequency, the chance of an ACL tear is higher in skiing than it is in snowboarding. The biomechanical argument you just presented is true. If a mobile joint like the ankle can't move, the physics response to accommodate for lost mobility is to move to the nearest stable joint and destabilize it, which in this case would be the knee. Counterpoint, snowboarders tear their ACLs too, not at the same frequency as skiers, but still not an insignificant amount. Your feet are locked in position too. I'm also going to give you the benefit of the doubt here, totally ignoring the getting on and off a chairlift with a locked ankle in a boot, a pre-twisted knee, and the speed required to mount and dismount the chair. Pretending the single foot strapped in thing doesn't exist, having both feet locked on a single rigid surface does make it quite hard to twist a knee in a manner that results in an ACL tear. So, rotational forces will bypass the knee, leaving them unscathed, or at least only lightly scathed. The next stop on the force train is the hips. The hips are meant to be independently acting mobile joints, but they are still subject to the feet being locked on a single rigid surface. So we have to continue some of that force up to the next stable segment. The low back has to destabilize to accommodate the entire lower body's reduced total mobility. Let's go one step further and look at the upper half of the body. You're twisted to a near end range in a single direction for at least 80% of the day. This is unless you were equally skilled at riding regular and goofy, which I speculate is only about 1% of you. You're also being subjected to repeated and heavily jarring forces while being in, his, in this near-extreme end-range asymmetrical position for many hours at a time. Oh yeah, also, you can fall too. After ACLs, there are no further arguments I accept, orthopedically speaking, where snowboarding is safer than skiing. 
you are quantitatively at much higher risk for an injury on a snowboard than on skis. Isn't it funny how many tangents have shown up in this episode? Man, I'm terrible at telling a story. So back to my wife on snowboarding. She's family, which means I don't treat her, but I will offer up some baseline anatomy, physiology, and biomechanics. I begin to explain that in order to counteract her snowboarding at least a couple of times per month, she would need to be doing corrective exercises several times per week, every week. I explain how it's important to unwind the position, retrain motor control patterns that are being undone in her chosen activity, and even strengthen the counter movements to her snowboarding position. After all, snowboarding does build motor training and even a degree of strengthening, but in a very specific position. Adam, I don't have time for that. This is a callback to her highly demanding job, plus her moonlighting job. The cruel mistress that is physics dictates my response to her. How much do you want to hurt? This single statement is the beginning of what eventually becomes tears for so many people I've psychologically damaged. At surface value, I'm being an asshole saying it. My family and friends will attest that I do not put the patient filter on my speech with them. The sentence alone is quite harsh, I admit. To a patient, I say it in a more approachable and friendly way, but the message is still the same. How much do you want to hurt? That single sentence is the culmination of math equations that are what make up the field of physics. I've used a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson before, and I'll use it again. The universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. How much do you want to hurt is not about cruelty. It's quite simply a sentence that makes up the whole of physics. You may not like it, you may not agree with it, or even understand it, but you are subject to it. In my wife's case, I didn't speak the sentence simply because she was a snowboarder. That sentence requires buildup. The people I make cry are pretty exclusively in their early to mid-30s, and she was in that range. The buildup is from what I like to call orthopedic debt. Orthopedic debt is modified from what is commonly called tech debt in the software engineering world. When a bug is found in software, sometimes it gets deprioritized for other projects. The bug is filed in the backlog and sits there until it can fit into the company roadmap to be worked on. Or more realistically, it just sits there until the fire alarm goes off and everything goes to shit because the bug was never fixed. Only then does the bug get fixed. This is why I stole the phrase and modified it to orthopedic debt. Everything going to shit is the same in humans, and it's on a pretty predictable timescale. When we are teenagers, we are invincible. We do whatever we want, eat whatever we want, sleep on inconsistent schedules, and there are no repercussions. Even the teenagers who don't do anything but sit in a chair all day fit into the same group as high-level athletes. It's a different kind of abuse on their bodies, but it's still abuse nonetheless. This abuse isn't noticed or felt because it's being done to a clean slate. It does need to be compensated for, though. In our 20s, we are no better than when we were in our teens. Same bad habits, same stupid stuff, and honestly, there's often an escalation of risk and intensity of the stupid stuff we do in our 20s compared to our teens. At least when we were teens, we had parents yelling at us to knock it off. In our 20s, we were free to be even bigger dumbasses. That dumbassery has to be compensated for, too. It's not a clean slate anymore, either. But it is only a little messy at this point. By the time we hit our early to mid-30s, the clean slate we had as teenagers is a fucking disaster. We finally hit the last compensation that is just too much for the body to handle. Now we feel the pain from piles of compensations we developed over the previous decade. Then, the conversation with my wife ensues. 
my blank hurts. You need to do X, Y, and Z. I don't have time for that. Time or not, your body still needs to unpack all of that orthopedic debt and you need to prevent adding more debt. But I'm not old. I didn't say you were. Your body has just changed from previous activities and corrections need to be done. But I don't have time for that. How much do you want to hurt? But I'm not old! And finally, we have tears of anger and frustration. This conversation may have been with my wife, but it is essentially the same conversation I've had with so many patients. The X, Y, and Z things that I tell patients to do is just a placeholder for any of the activities they're suffering with. It also doesn't matter what their chosen activities are. For a patient in their early to mid-30s, the X, Y, and Z are always time-consuming and difficult to do. Over a decade's worth of debt can't be cleared overnight, any kind of debt. It requires hard work, dedication, and compromise. I've been told many times through tears of frustration that I tell patients what I tell patients they need to do is an unreasonable ask. I can't expect someone to take that much time out of their busy lives while also making so many compromises. It's simply too much to ask. I agree. The things I ask patients to do are unreasonable. And given the way our society works, even unrealistic. Sadly, physics doesn't care. So all I'm left with is how much do you want to hurt? The good news is that after the tears of anger and frustration, many patients learn how to take the huge blow and adjust. After all, most people are fully capable of understanding the truth of what I had to tell them. It's not doing math equations in the 11th dimension, so unless a patient is sticking their head in the sand, they can see where I got the list of correctives they need to do. Secondarily, most people know that at some point in their life they will need to stop doing many activities they do when they're young. The blow for people is that the time to stop activities comes with a quote-unquote old age, and the number that equates to old age is a lot higher than 32 years old. This is the dilemma. The story I tell creates a feeling of old age in a person, but they are objectively not old. The gravity of not being allowed to be a weekend warrior anymore is harsh. However, with some time, thought, and application of what I tell the person to do, they find that they can quite easily keep doing the activities they want to, at least for a little while longer, depending on the activity. The tears come from being one of the first times a person is met with a reality check about their capabilities. The first time we get any kind of reality check is hard, but reality checks are not impasses. They are simply reminders that reality has a few more demands on you than there used to be. Once all of the dust settles, the person I've made cry with some work can continue onward and upward enjoying the activities they love. Signing off for today. Never settle for mediocre, but be careful how hard you burn striving for greatness. Sometimes that cost is more than your mind can afford.